Burnout is back from our annual summer hiatus, and I am recharged and ready to get back to tackling the big issues of the day. One of the things that I did while I was away was attend Plebity's inaugural virtual conference, Free Speech and the Left, a timely and important gathering that brought together many prominent writers and thinkers on the left. I was honored to moderate a panel for that conference, which I enjoyed so much that I'm bringing it to you today in podcast form and which features two former Lean Out guests. Khalid and Jeff Snyder are history professors at Carleton College. The title of our recent Plevity panel discussion is Personal Experiences and Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Free Speech. You can find the conference archived online at plebity.org. Amna Khalid and Jeff Snyder are my guests today on Lean Out. Amna, Jeff, it's so great to be with you both again. We've had some really fruitful conversations in the past. I'm really pleased that we get to talk through sort of the big issues of our day again and uh, just delighted to take part in this conference, which is uh, just really an important conversation about free speech on the left. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. And I thought today we could start, this is the topic of the panel today is personal experiences and thoughts on identity politics, cancel culture, and free speech. That's a big umbrella for us to start with. Let's maybe start by setting terms. I mean, what do we mean when we say we're talking about identity politics? You want to start with this one? No, I, I think you'll take it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, I think this is important to clarify because I think there are various meanings of identity politics, right? There's um, there's a, an identity politics that has been central uh, to the long civil rights movement in the United States uh, where uh, African-Americans have, um, have constructed and advanced an idea of being a community, of being a people who share certain interests, who share certain features of oppression, um, and so a kind of identity politics in the interests of solidarity and organizing power. So in some ways, you know, the classic civil rights movement of the 1960s, although it was expansive and involved in interracial coalition, at its heart, it was very grounded in identity politics. That is, it came out of the Black experience or Black experiences, plural. Um, one can also say that identity politics has been foundational to all of U.S. history in terms of uh, taking the broad view and thinking about the role that uh, whiteness, white people have played in advancing racially coded ideas about citizenship. Uh, so for those people who think that identity politics is only for people of color, I would strongly reject that notion. You've seen uh, very strong and powerful coalitions of, of, of white people across history who have organized to defend uh, their interests, whether that's property rights or voting rights. Um, in terms of how it's understood today, the way that I would think about it in the context of a conversation about academic freedom, free speech, um, cancel culture, and so on, is that identity politics uh, of this vein has uh, been uh, has been narrowed to to a very fine point, and so I would say that today's identity politics, uh, to my mind, in certain areas, is about a kind of standpoint epistemology. Mm. Uh, so the idea is that uh, you can only represent, uh, you can only speak 
according to the community that you are a part of or the communities that you are a part of. Uh, and that constructs a very narrow idea of, of identity. That's the, you know, um, uh, Asian people shouldn't write about the Black experience because they, they haven't had that direct lived experience, right? So you see that idea of lived experience. And of course, lived experience is essential for understanding the world. But if lived experience becomes a way of erecting boundaries, a way of telling other people, you can't speak for me. Uh, and in addition to that, you can't even understand me because you haven't lived in my shoes. I'll let Amna add in here. Yeah, just just to clarify a couple of things. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I, I of course, agree with things that Jeff has laid out. But I think identity politics emerged also out of um you know, has has deep connections with feminism and with the idea that your identity is critical to how you are in the world and how you present in the world. So, so I don't. I want to recognize that, and I think what we're seeing today is a very different kind of identity politics. I would call it the bureaucratization of identity politics, where it's turned into a box checking exercise, and where it's very much about. Your, your monolithic identity as a community member, and then you were seen as representing that community, which is why the identity politics of today is coming into conflict with freedom of ideas, because there is no room for you to espouse ideas that might go against what your community is uh, supposedly espousing, right? So if you're kind of a dissenter within the community, then somehow your voice counts for less, and that's getting in the way of your individual expression. And the point that Jeff made about standpoint epistemology, again, you know, by way of clarification, um, standpoint epistemology, when it originated, actually had a lot to contribute to the ways in which we think about knowledge production. Um, and I think those are valuable contributions that your lived experience and your particular position in the world informs your worldview. And, and that needs to be taken into consideration. You have to remember that this was coming at a time when the idea was that there's objective knowledge, you know, that somehow everything can be object, objective. And it was questioning that idea. So it allowed a lot of minorities in, in many interesting ways to, to bring their experiences to bear upon knowledge construction. And I think that is vital. Um, but reducing it to purely lived experience is how we're exp experiencing it today. So for instance, in my classrooms, you know, I'll ask a question and then about, you know, why are Indians X, Y, and Z? And then some white student will reluctantly raise their hand and say, well, I don't know. I'm not an Indian. As a white person, I can't really know their experience. And I'm like, well, this isn't about experience. This is really just trying to understand behavior or a social strategy or whatever we're discussing. So I think there are ways in which both identity politics and standpoint epistemology have been reduced to things that they weren't initially uh, intended to be. But let's throw in some additional jargon here, right? So related to all of this is the idea of intersectionality, mm. right? And so as a social scientist and, and who straddles also the humanities historian, also in the field of ed studies, uh, intersectionality, the idea that each of us of individuals are made up of multiple overlapping intersecting identities, that's an empirically uh, accurate way of describing the world. You literally can't argue with it from a historical or sociological perspective. And there's something brilliant about that insight, right? That the experience of a black woman would be fundamentally different from the experience of a black man uh, when you take into account gender and not just their, their racial background. But again, as Amna said, the problem is 
when intersectionality isn't one of many lenses that we bring to address and think through social problems, but when it's the only lens. And one additional addendum to that would be the fact that intersectionality privileges certain kinds of identities and ignores others. So intersectionality today is very inattentive in general to class, almost wholly indifferent to religion. And there are many people in the United States who, if you ask them who they are, their, their very first state would be something like, I'm a Christian, no matter their ethno-racial background. So again, a lot of these ideas are very powerful, but they've been narrowed down, distorted, uh, and um, reduced. Reduced, yeah. And mm-hmm. clearly, with the two of us, Tara, you're going to have to fight really hard <laughs> to get a word in. <laughs> this is great. We're starting with a really high degree of nuance, which I think is part of the solution to the kind of polarization that is, you know, inherent to the, to the issues that we're discussing today. So I'm really. I'm really happy that we're starting off from a place of complicating the narrative and trying to get more nuance into the conversation. And, you know, you mentioned class. I think that's a a really good piece to bring in early as well. I mean, the traditional left was about class and about material conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, recently when I, I interviewed Adolf Reed and he was talking about we're seeing at the heart of these issues is a competition between two different ideals of social justice, the racial democracy idea and the social democracy idea. And this is a a model, I believe, from Preston Smith. And one of them looks at structures in society and says, okay, we have this percentage of this identity. We need to have that percentage represented up and down the hierarchy. The other perspective looks at the hierarchy and says, how do we narrow the injustices between all the groups? Um, I would definitely fall on the second, but I do think it's a useful way of sort of describing what we're seeing right now. What do you think? Well, I I, I would agree. I mean, I think there is a way in which, um, and there's a lot of contribution, the cultural turn, if you will, made a lot of contributions to understanding how inequality um, works through culture and reproduces itself. But, and, and that was an incredibly valuable contribution again at that time to to see the mechanisms of power um, and to look at how symbols and um, language and gesture, not gestures, but like cultural norms um, begin to reproduce inequalities. But the problem is, I feel like right now we're in a moment where that conversation has become completely divorced from the material conditions. And it's almost as if you know, um, contesting symbols in itself becomes the end all and be all of social justice. Well, here's a concrete example of that, right? So uh, several years ago in the Trump era, when there were um, all of the migrant children who had been detained at the Mexico-U.S. border, often in um, uh, really gruesome and grim conditions, um, uh, one could see in the popular press uh, a debate about how to refer to these particular children. And there were some people who insisted that they they had to be referred to as Latinx migrants, um, that that somehow was, was really important uh, in terms of centering their experiences and their identity. Um, but if you step back from that and think about that battle over terminology and vocabulary, um, I mean, forgive me, I will try and put myself into the shoes of an 11-year-old coming from Guatemala. I don't think that it's going to matter 
to that 11-year-old what they are called, the term that they are used. What they want is relief from the acute suffering that they're experiencing. They want people to pay attention to them. But yes, it is about their material conditions. And whether you refer to them as Latinx, uh, migrants, uh, it it doesn't matter uh, if we're not doing anything to actually alleviate their conditions and 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 remove them from you know the horrible circumstances that they were enmeshed in, mm-hmm. and I, I think there's also to the issue of um, impracticality in terms of what's being proposed on the left right now. So there's this idea that we can have this coalition of these identity groups, which in some cases have competing interests. I mean, the classic example we're seeing play out of that right now is radical feminists and and trans women. These are tricky issues. They're going to require a lot of compromise. They're going to require a lot of care and a lot of negotiation. But the idea that this is a natural coalition is is in some cases impractical. Well, yes. And uh, to me, I would even, you know, become more basic about it. And I I resent the term um, BIPOC, for instance. There is a way in which that terminology itself assumes uh, a shared experience. And um, the only shared experience is that BIPOC people are not white. And that's not that 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 doesn't say much. Right. And that there are also deep assumptions about how whiteness is operating in different contexts um, and how uh, the politics of color, whatever that is, is is also playing out. So to my mind, um, there is a, again, it's this binary approach and it is flattening differences and assuming that you are a natural ally if you are non-white. And to me, that actually reeks of a racist, um, racist underpinnings. Well, this is, as as a historian, this is deeply frustrating because the anti-racist dogma that um, BIPOC people are going to share natural affinities and have a kind of political sensibility and solidarity um, is just absolutely uh, disintegrates when you look at um, just U.S. history. You don't even need to look abroad, right? But just within the broader domain of of people who are now coded as white, um, the animosity between Irish immigrants and Protestants, between people from uh, Poland and uh, and Western Europe. I mean, these have been dramatic and sometimes violent um, conflicts between these groups that are all now seen as white. I mean, anybody who goes to an urban area in the United States today, if you've got your eyes open, you will notice that there are visible tensions among different quote-unquote BIPOC communities. For example, in Washington, D.C., where I lived for seven years in a predominantly Black neighborhood, I mean, this harkens back to Spike Lee's 1989 film, Do the Right Thing, right, where you could see a real palpable tension uh, between um, uh, the local Black community and more recent immigrants, specifically from South Korea, who had, you know, the corner grocery store. It was palpable when you walked into the grocery store that there was a sense of tension. There was no natural affinity between these two groups, and why would there be? They don't share a a history, a, a, a language, except for those who were born in the United States. So I think... I think uh, from a historical perspective, you almost have to teach students to unlearn. The default is not solidarity. The default is friction uh, if you live in a pluralistic, multicultural democracy. And so uh, I think that's a really important point, because especially for those students who want to become activists, if you imagine that uh, all BIPOC people are going to sign on to your petition straight away because of what they look like, uh, you're you're in for some tough lessons in the real rigor of, of, of organizing. 
Mm. I mean, it's, it's such a good point. No, go ahead, Amra. Uh, well, I was just going to say, sorry, Tara, that, you know, I feel like the 20th century, we spent so much time kind of debunking the idea of race as biological, for instance, that these are social categories and recognizing that. And this is, yes, of course, racism exists. No one's denying that. But race in itself, there's nothing essential about it. But now I find that we've we're in a moment where we've kind of come to that, but at the same time, we want to hang on to this idea that there's something inherently biologically different about being from a different race. And when you start thinking about it in those terms, it leads to very simplistic notions of BIPOC people must be trusted whenever they say something. And well, why? Like, why would you not think that we are equally as complex, which means also being mean, horrible, disingenuous. That's part of the complexity of being human too, right? But we're not all golden all the time. And the we in itself is a problem. So it leads to very simplistic thinking and assumptions being made, which are really just anti-intellectual. There's mm. no other way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw this in the newsroom when we um, started sort of tracking guests by race. And the idea was that we would increase the diversity of viewpoint on air by increasing the racial diversity. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's a laudable goal. That is not how it worked out. Because mm -hmm. if you're looking at strictly through the prism of race, you can um, have an outcome, which I saw many times, where you still have the vast majority of your guest base, um, economically privileged, living in urban areas, credentialed, and, mm -hmm. you know, subscribing to this sort of, uh, quote, unquote, woke ideology, whereas huge parts of the population have different religious views, different educational backgrounds, you know, a rural experience. I mean, there's many facets, this should require stressing, but it does, many facets of being a human being. Indeed. I mean, I think I think there's an element of vanity and narcissism, especially on the part of white liberals, but on the part of a lot of uh, liberal folks, in that they want their environment, whether that's a corporate office in Silicon Valley, whether that's a college campus, whether that's a nonprofit organization, they want their uh small professional context to reflect the ethno-racial diversity of the United States. Uh, this is Obama's cabinet, right? You had people who, who came from, their ancestors came from every single part of the world, but all of them went to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, or Stanford, mm -hmm. right? And so there's this idea that we can achieve what I would call cosmetic diversity in these very narrow professional contexts, and we can pat ourselves on the back for being so enlightened and look, and look at how diverse the faculty is or look at how diverse the people who work at this particular NGO are. But when you when you zoom out, and this gets back to the race versus class distinction, when, when you zoom out, you're missing out on not just a large segment, but the overwhelming majority of people in the United States who do not work re or reside in these contexts. So, you know, the equity that you're striving for laudable goal. Of course, we should go for it. But we shouldn't um, convince ourselves or imagine uh, that diversifying a college campus, no matter how pressing and how serious I take that, uh, is, is somehow moving the needle on social justice more broadly, whether that's the 18,000 people who live in Northfield and have no connection to Carleton College, whether that's all the, you know, the, the millions of people in the United States who don't have college degrees, the working class, the poor, uh, these people often aren't incorporated into these discussions, except in the most perfunctory and and kind of uh, patronizing, patronizing, sloganeering way. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes are treated with active hostility as well. Yeah. Yes. And so so to my mind, if I think about, um, uh, you, you know, uh, various earlier iterations of, of the left um, is all about creating solidarities across lines of difference. Um, and, um, and, and I think we've lost that skill and we've lost that interest. Not everybody. Of course, there are fantastic activists and thinkers who are super attuned to this. But generally, the state of the left, uh, I don't think, is it's struggling to build coalitions. And that comes back to the identity politics sort of splintering of the left into these various identity-based factions. Mm-hmm. One um, thing, absolutely. And one thing I, I worry about is um, sort of feeding the beast of racialized thinking. And so I think a lot about um, Eli Steele, who made this wonderful movie called How Jack Became Black about his multiracial son and having to choose a box for what. And, you know, Eli is a descendant of slaves and a descendant of the Holocaust. And he sort of spends the film meditating on we've tried this before in history. This has not worked out well for us as humanity. And I see some of the solutions that are now being tried out, things like affinity groups, which is racial segregation, leading us down a very dangerous path. Um, I agree, and I have very strong views about this. Not that I um, have mild views about anything, but (laughs) I actually think, I, I completely agree with you that there is a way in which we're reproducing that kind of segregated and racialized thinking. And I think, you know, the the question that's always interested me is why? Why is this happening? As someone who looked to the U.S., I'm an immigrant here, who looked to the U.S. as a place that I would definitely not be encountering this, at least from the outside, it seemed like the U.S. is, you know, the stalwart of free expression and individuality, and that identity would not be this thing that would be holding people back and people won't be put into boxes. Because I do come from a context where, you know, I come from Pakistan, so I've put in a box as a woman, as a Pakistani woman, as a Muslim woman, and they're that strong kind of prescriptive norms of how you should behave. So to, to my mind, this was where I was coming to, to get away from that and to actually come into my own. And I find I find it troubling to to see that happen over here. And one of the reasons I think, and this is a big one, as an immigrant, as an outsider that I've come to see is that there is a way in which Americans at this moment, I'm generalizing, but talking about the public sphere, Americans in general are not engaging with their own history. So there's a lot of historical ignorance, right? Um, And on top of that, that coupled with this kind of exceptionalism, which is translated into isolationism, that's disconnected it from the rest of the world, where people, Americans don't feel the need to engage with the rest of the world, means that they are ignorant of what's been done in history and what's happening elsewhere in the world, which means that they think that they've figured out the solution. And this generation is like, oh, no, no, we figured out the right way to censor what we think is wrong, and then we'll create a perfect society. And I'm like, historically, we know this has not happened. And again and again, and also globally, it just takes a very brief look across the shores of the US to recognize that many of these seemingly good experiments have failed miserably. So I'm making a huge plug for the study of history and for kind of looking at the world beyond the U.S. Yes, you're here to to, to both of those. I, I would just I have a slightly different take maybe on affinity groups. I'd be curious what, uh, what Amna makes of this. But to my mind, if you believe in free speech and you believe in freedom of association, by definition, you've, um, you've endorsed the idea of affinity groups. 
you know, um, whether that's people who want to play Frisbee or whether that's uh, women in STEM. Uh, and I actually think that there's enormous value for voluntary, and I want to stress that voluntary affinity groups on places like college campuses. If first-generation students find that it's helpful uh, to meet among themselves, compare notes on their experience, the unique challenges that they face, uh, trying to, to organize if there are particular resources the college can provide them with, like more power to them. I, I um I support that. Same thing with something like women or un un underrepresented student populations in STEM, um, a faculty of color who might want to to get together and and have a you know kind of affinity group where they where they build community. Uh, that's very different from mandatory racial affinity groups for the purpose of say anti racism training, mm. because there you're not getting together on your own free will. You're being forced to do something and forced to check a box. I mean, when you think about these kinds of trainings, one of the first things that of course comes up is, you know, what, what do you do if you're biracial or multiracial? Which affinity group do you go to? And, and the idea there is not just that, hey, these affinity groups can be useful, it's that these affinity groups are foundational to how you understand yourself. You know, you get this from people like John McWhorter. He'll talk about various elements of of, of the African American experience. It's like those those don't resonate with me. Um, I'm not interested in them. If they resonate with other people, sure, I'll have that be a strong part of your identity. So I, I, I resist and resent the imposition that race must be central to your identity and must be central to to your identity in the way that social progressives um, have have defined it. But affinity groups, more broadly conceived, especially on a campus. Uh, I, I think campus life would be much diminished if we didn't have those kinds of student groups and affinity groups. Yeah, I, I kind of want to, you said that you don't know what I think about this. Mm. Um, I don't, like, I think my critique is precisely yours, which is these kind of forced affinity groups, right? Mm. Voluntary affinity groups are freedom of association. As far as I'm concerned, that's very compatible with the idea of freedom of thought. So that's something you voluntarily, and that affinity group doesn't, it can be around identity. It can be around some, an interest you mm -hmm. have, right? So, so that's to, to my mind, that kind of affinity group isn't the issue. It's these kinds of forced affinity groups that are becoming prescriptive and that are determining where you fit in to the social structure. There's also something comical, Tara, when you, when, when you do these uh, breakdowns into affinity groups, like um, along the lines of race on a college campus, because many of these we're just talking about anti-racism trainings, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll we'll combine faculty and staff into the into the same meeting groups, and and the idea that uh, people share anything, uh, politics, worldview, values, uh, because they're white, is just blown apart after five minutes because you've got people with PhDs uh, who are you know in an affinity group with uh, people who are in janitorial services. And the the assumption that uh, there's some sort of key characteristic of our identity and whiteness is just kind of nuts to me because when you take into account the class angle, mm -hmm. like there's a, there's the, the real divide there would be within the white affinity group. The people who are going places, who are upper middle class, the students who are enrolled on campus, 
And then the, the people who um, clean our offices, you know, at midnight, I haven't even met the person who cleans my office, uh, who may well be a, a white man or a white woman. Um, but, but what's the nature of our relationship there? So there's something almost absurd and comical uh, when you actually break it down. I mean, I think about no offense to my relatives in rural Texas. Uh, but in some of these anti-racism workshops, you'll hear ideas about how, how white people share not just white privilege, you can empirically demonstrate that on averages, but that we have a kind of white culture and a white consciousness. There are certain white values. Again, I'll do respect to my relatives in, in, in rural Texas. They're evangelical Christians. I'm agnostic. They're diehard Republicans. I've never voted for a Republican in my life. Um, they are, uh, they've worked as missionaries in Africa. Uh, I appreciate their enterprise and concern, but I personally find that hugely problematic, right? So, so there's really, we, we don't share, I have much more in common with this woman sitting next to me from Pakistan, 10,000 miles away, who grew up Muslim than I do with those relatives that I've seen every other year at family reunions. Well, that's only because I'm just so cool. That's true. <laughs> It gets too serious. We need a bit of love. <laughs> I also, before we move on to talking about a liberalism, which I would I like to do next, the other issue I wanted to raise with identity politics that I think we should just dig into briefly is how disempowering it can be for individuals. That that these are, you know, identities, this is your fate, this is, you know, a sort of albatross that you must carry, as opposed to what you can do, what action you can take. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, by way of, Jeff, you should tell the story of your Moroccan student in terms of how um, okay. yeah. how uh, disempowering it can be. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, go ahead and then I'll, I'll build on it. Well, okay. So first I want to tell a Misty Copeland anecdote. Uh, and then I'll tell the, the the Moroccan student anecdote. But M Misty Copeland, who's now one of the the, the principal ballerinas, where is she at the um, the American Ballet in New York City, uh, African American woman originally from from Southern California. She told us she tells a story about how growing up, all she wanted to do was ballet, but everyone around her, her teachers, even her own family, her peers, said, "Hey, no, you should do hip hop, you should do jazz." Why are you interested in ballet? Like, that's a white thing, not a black thing. So I think that that relates very much to this, uh, what, what you're talking about, the circumscribing of horizons based on oh. some sort of imagined affinity. And so part of her uh, push, now that she has this prominent position, is like, ballet for everyone, <laughs> right? <laughs> not, 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 like, no, no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money your, your, your parents make. Um the the anecdote that uh, Amna wanted me to share, uh, maybe it gets into the illiberalism question. Um, I was asking students to talk about the campus climate and whether discussions about microaggressions had had any impact on their experience at, at Carleton College. And I had a student who was a sophomore from Morocco, and he he raised his hand, and he said, "Yes, I think there's been a, a pretty significant impact." Um, I said, do, "Do you have a specific example?" He said, "Yeah." He said, um, "You know, I I I dress." Like I'm, I'm, I'm foreign. Like I don't look like I'm from here. I speak with with an accent. Like my 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 name is 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 unusual to most Americans and to American ears. But nobody will ask me where are you from because they're so afraid it'll be perceived as a microaggression. And he said, you know, this to me is really frustrating because all I want to do is tell my peers about Marrakesh. 
and about Moroccan history and culture. And I love it. I mean, not that he wanted to be a spokesperson uh, for his community, but he wanted to share his life experience. And so if if you have that kind of reluctance to engage in a conversation, and this is where it shades into the illiberalism question, right, um, then you really are in a looking glass, Alice through the looking glass world, where you have this remarkable diversity on college campuses, but you can't harness its power and potential because people are afraid to engage with one another. And that just makes me deeply frustrated and, and sad on, on, some, on some basic level. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just thinking about your question about how it's disempowering. And um, I think it really, it, it it gets in the way of individual actualization. Um, because if you are defined by your category, and if there are modes of, or kind of rules of engagement, as in the case of the Moroccan student, you know, that, that are dictating what, how socially you can uh, learn, essentially, about others, then it's, it's fundamentally anti-individual and I am not yet ready to jump on that bandwagon. For me, education and um, being able to, you know, explore my own thinking has been so central to a sense of empowerment. So to have that curtailed is because of my perceived identity also, not because of what I think of myself, but my perceived identity um, really is, is running counter to the idea of what diversity can yield. Like Jeff said, you know, it's not really harnessing that power of diversity. Mm -hmm. And the idea of open inquiry, I mean, for me, I grew up on the progressive left. I was an environmental activist in high school. I studied a lot of these ideas in university. I'm happy they exist. I'd love to be able to debate them openly in all contexts. Mm. But where I really parted ways with this new left that's ascendant is over the idea that you cannot question these ideas. You know, I, I watched in 2020 in particular in my own newsroom, this go go from being a voice in the room, which I support 100% it being there, to the only voice in the room. Um, and you're not allowed to question it. And let's talk a little bit about that dynamic. What, what was that voice? Could you characterize what that what that voice sounded like and what it was saying? Yeah, so the, it was a cluster of views on race, on gender, on even in the environment, on COVID. It seemed to be largely mm. dictated by Twitter, but underlying it all was these more complex kind of academic ideas about how power operates, um, mm. it favored identity over other ideas. It was this sort of cluster, and it's taken me so long to unpack it because I really, it caught me unaware. I know you both have been thinking about the sort of a liberal turn for quite a while. For me, it, 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 it really caught me unaware. So let's talk a little bit about what we've seen happening on that front. Some people call it cancel culture, this sort of mob action to enforce a certain ideology, a certain set of views. What do we think about what we've seen happen and, and where things are at today? So I think what you're experiencing is, or what you've described, is, is an experience that's not unfamiliar to people on college campuses, um, it, especially elite, I should be very clear, elite college campuses, which do get a lot of press, are the ones where we see these trends um, playing out 
as well as newsrooms and other places, but I'll, I'll capitalize on the experience that I have um, of teaching on a college campus. And I think part of the problem, this idea, this dogma that we figured it out and this is the right answer and it cannot be questioned has led to an environment where the left hasn't critiqued itself. And when, when people like Jeff and I, um, who identify with the left, have critiqued it, we've been, you know, there's an attempt to shut us down. And I will say that the lack of self-critique is the beginning of the downward spiral. Because when you lose that ability to turn the critical lens on yourself, um, and by yourself, I don't mean an individual, that too, but here we're talking about ideologically. Then what happens is, I don't think it's the cause of, so I want to be clear about that. It's not the cause of, but it certainly facilitates the kind of doctrinaire response and authoritarian response we're seeing on the extreme right now. And it's precisely because we haven't been critical that we find ourselves a little caught unawares of what, you know, like, what should we do with this situation with what the right is doing? And we're like, we didn't anticipate this. Well, you didn't anticipate this because you're not open to thinking about Maybe you're wrong on certain things, self-critique, self-analysis. And I think we're paying the price for it right now. Yeah, I think illiberalism is very related to um, political purity and um, the idea that we have to be internally consistent, that we have to agree on every single important question and topic with our with our political allies. Otherwise, we're going to we're going to fragment uh, into our own, into our own separate groups. Um, I have more to say, but I want to, I want to hear another, uh, another question or another point. I mean, I wonder too, if the sort of, I think that the self-critique is, is a really important point that Amna has raised. And I think related to that is the sort of self-censorship that we're seeing right now. I certainly saw that within the media. I know FIRE recently did a survey saying that uh, faculty members are self-censoring more than they did in the McCarthy era. And my experience um, in the newsroom was that you had sort of a small core of very true believers of this particular mm -hmm. ascendant ideology. And then you had a lot of people who may agree with one piece of it, but not others. Um, or who don't agree with it at all and are terrified to voice um, what even six months before would have been a very reasoned kind of uh, compassionate argument, you know, against some of these ideas and that you, the sort of preference falsification that we're seeing in a lot of institutions right now is very widespread. What are your thoughts on that? How much self-censorship do you think is going on right now? Within the academy, I think a lot, to be honest. Um, and I think more than we know, it's very hard to track. And it's very hard to, precisely because self-censorship happens in an atmosphere of fear. So people won't talk to you It's um, and won't tell you that they're self-censoring. But behind closed doors, when we speak to people, um, when I speak to faculty, um, people are self-censoring um, because of the kind of tyranny that is coming either like in Florida, it's they're self-censoring because of state tyranny about what you can and can't teach and they don't want to fall into hot water or because of social tyranny, you know, public opinion tyranny and the kind of consensus that there is. So people, for instance, on our campus are, like you said, they're very, there may be few true believers, but everyone else is being silent. And, and that's pointing, and there is a lot of self-censorship, and that's pointing to the wider culture of censoriousness, which is being normalized by being quiet, and which is being normalized by being quiet on both 
in the in the context of the right turning from the right and the left and um that is not a healthy environment for learning to take place like there is it is fundamentally um restrictive and i this is my problem with what's happening on college campuses is like it really goes against the very mission of what we're trying to create in these spaces which is a certain openness to ideas mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is making me think of um the Nigerian novelist uh, Chimanada Azadichie's recent lecture that she gave, um, the BBC Wreath lecture uh, on freedom of expression, um, and you know she 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 talked about certain classic books. Uh, I think she mentioned Lolita, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, no, it might have been Rushdie, Satanic Verses. But she talked about certain books that she didn't think could be written today. Um, uh, because they they the controversy that would break out would be too much for you know the publishing company to handle. They wouldn't want to be in the crosshairs like that. But I had a deeper dimension to it. Uh, she was asked if she read contemporary literature, and she said, "Yeah, I read a little bit of it, but I get frustrated very quickly." She said, "As a writer, as a novelist myself, I can detect the self censorship impulse lurking in the background. I can wow. see, I can see what the authors are going for, but they take a step back because they're they're too afraid. And of course, this kind of self censorship." Um, you know, beyond an educational context, she described it as like the death of of curiosity and creativity. So I think I just it's 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 an incredibly hard thing to pinpoint. Even the surveys are are, are going to be difficult to parse, right? Like, do you occasionally self censor? Yeah, like a friend of mine gets like a bad haircut, and I'm not like, wow, you, you, you that's really a bad haircut. Um, right. To me, that's that's tact. That's not really self-censorship. But when you're doing a survey, you just say, do you sometimes not speak your mind? Yes. Every day. we we The people that don't self-censor, don't have tact, generally are not our friends. We want to avoid them. Right. At any rate, what I'm trying to say is that it's tough to put your, your, your finger on that. But just to amplify what Amna said, I've talked to now dozens of faculty across the country who have quietly dropped assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, books, um, movies, movies, texts, because art, it, because it's not, it's not worth the potential bedlam that could ensue. Uh, and these are very committed, very skilled teachers, right. Who, who, who are, who are really worried about grabbing onto that third reel if they, if they teach certain content. Mm-hmm. I, I want to um, just spend a moment before we close talking about the particular kind of present moment that we're in. So John McWhorter has been calling for quite a long time now for uh, a mass of ordinary people to sort of stand down the mob and to uh, stand up for open inquiry, to stand up for open debate. And I I see some signs that that's happening. I'm looking at the recent Stanford law case where you had a group of students shout down a speaker and the dean took a very strong stand on um, freedom of speech. I think we're seeing this group at this faculty led group at Harvard on Council on Academic Freedom starting. We're seeing, uh, you know, Cornell rejecting tr- trigger warnings. I'm, Amna, I know you were just quoted in that New York Times article about it. 
I see a bit of a tide turning. And for about six months, a lot of the guests on my podcast have been saying they see the same. Is this wishful thinking? Do we think things are starting to change a little bit? I actually do think that it's beginning to change, but I just don't want to be, you know, I'm hopeful, but I'm just not certain yet. And I also think this is a long and slow change. So I think we've reached the kind of apex of the pendulum on whatever one side it was. And it's in the gravitational pull is now beginning to kick in. Um, but I'm not quite sure yet uh, how fast that process is going to happen. And also don't know which direction it's going to go in. So I'm hopeful. I think there are some signs of change. Um, but then, you know, I look at presidents in Florida of educational institutions, and I it makes my blood boil. I'm like, clearly the diet isn't changing for you guys. You are still scared and you're not standing up to it. And the fact of the matter is that they can. I don't buy this argument that they're going to lose millions of dollars of funding. If there's a concerted, actually, you know, unified effort to say, no, the state has no business interfering in higher education like this, then hell yes, they have a voice and they can do it. So this idea, oh no, you know, this is on the line, that is something is on the line all the time, but there are principles which we do not sacrifice if we, you know, truly believe and live by them. Yeah, I mean, I think liberalism on the right, unfortunately, is just getting ramped up. Uh, and anybody who cares about free speech, free expression, academic freedom should be very attentive to places like Florida and Texas uh, and, and and the place that illiberalism, book bans and all of this anti-CRT legislation is playing in the Republican Party platform. If I'm thinking about illiberalism from the left, though, I guess this the, the tortured analogy that I might use is thinking about a wave or even a tsunami, right? The tsunami has crashed down, uh, but in its wake, there's a path of destruction that's going to require years of cleanup. And, and what I mean by that is I do think that we're past peak, whatever you want to call it, wokeness, I don't particularly like that term, cancel culture. Uh, I, I do think that's peaked. But then we have to ask the question, um, what, what do our institutions look like? And I can't speak to others, but I can talk about college campuses. And even if the vibe, to use a term preferred by my students, has shifted, right, and become more open, more, more willing to debate, um, less doctrinaire. We now have institution, institutional bureaucracies on campuses across the country um, that are devoted to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Laudable goals, as Amna and I have written about extensively, but often uh, problematic when, when put into practice. Uh, so I think even, even though there's a mood shift, you're still going to have a biased response team where a student can say, oh, I was offended by this person's statement about the state of Israel. I thought it was anti-Semitic. And that goes up the chain of administrative command, and that's going to have chilling effects. So I think we're going to have to live with these things in tension for the foreseeable future, because that's been the multi-million dollar expenditures has gone into the expansion of administrators, especially in, in, in diversity offices. Um, I think some of them are highly skilled and really advanced the fundamental mission of higher ed to develop critical thinking, but there are plenty of examples. Stanford is one, Hamlin is another, um, where where those offices are doing a, a very poor job at promoting open inquiry. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're, they're tamping down on it. Mm -hmm. And where do we think, just in the two, three minutes that we have left, where do we think the left needs to go from here?
I mean, I do, I do, I do think that the 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 left um, should try and move beyond the circular firing squad effect of drawing these very hard and fast lines of clinging to very puritanical ideas about purity of confusing political positions with morality and whether you're a good person. I mean, to me, I would be most pleased if, and you can do this, this is where an intersectional analysis would be key. Just because you want to start thinking more about class doesn't mean you leave race behind. Let's look at how these things intersect with one another. But but I, but I do think there's so, the left has become untethered in my mind, sort of floating off into outer space once it loses that material conditions analysis. Uh, it becomes very symbolic, as Amna said. It becomes about debates over cultural symbols and, and, and language. Uh, whereas, yeah, I, I would just love people to, whenever we're having these DEI discussions, for somebody to raise their hand and be like, well, what about economics? What role does SES, socioeconomic status, play here? How does that create differential opportunities? You know, how does that circumscribe people's horizons? How should we think about the the, the the on campus, right? The challenges that particular students face uh because they're poor or they're they're low income. Uh, so just kind of having that class bell ringing uh, loud and clear and being able to bring it into the discussions without I mean Adolf Reed's a perfect example. Of, of of somebody who I think was prevented from speaking mm-hmm. by a New York unions group uh, because they didn't like that he wasn't as you know as a black man they didn't like that he wasn't paying enough attention to to race so so that exact dynamic I think needs to be reversed uh, for us to make um, to make genuine progress yeah I'd, I'd second that I think um, reconnecting with material conditions and remembering that equity and equality. Uh, aren't in in the abstract, right? These are things that <laughs> have material implications. And I think one of the ways in which the left can do that is to really step out of their own bubble. And when I say that, I don't mean just engaging with people on the extreme right, that too, but I actually mean literally just going into like rural America, like go, go do a reality check and go and see what people um, whose behalf you supposedly speak on are actually living and what are their issues and stop trying to impose your idea of justice and how it should be on on those. At least don't do it with this idea that you're helping uplift them without actually knowing who they are and what their concerns are. So I think it's a it's a moment or we need to have a call for like reconnecting with with the people that you supposedly claim you represent Mm -hmm. whose interests you represent Mm -hmm. absolutely i would like to see a real call for establishing some common ground as well i mean Mm -hmm. one of the things you learn as an interviewer is just how incredible human beings are how much complexity their lives represent how unique and sort of exquisite each person is. And once I think you can see that, I think you can begin to say, okay, what do we have in common? What can, what goals might we have in common? I'm I'm just very multifaceted and I'm one dimensional. I just want to clarify for the, uh, (laughs) for everyone. (laughs) Well, as an exception that proves the rule. I'm I'm not going to, um, I'm not even going to grace that with a comment. So ridiculous. (laughs) As always, it's so wonderful to get to speak with you both. I really appreciate your work and I appreciated this conversation today. No, this was wonderful. Thank you, Tara. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. You're a terrific interviewer and really appreciate the thoughtful questions and engagement. Thank you so much.
Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.